Let's turn in the scriptures to the prophecy of Nahum. It's a very small book, kind of challenging to find, but it's just a few pages before the New Testament. The older I get, the more I just, during the holiday time, want to sing songs of hope and pray with thankfulness to God for whatever blessings I have. As a child, I thought that Christmas songs, scripture readings, prayers, I thought they were the least fun part of the holiday. I like the presents. Even 10 years ago, I think I would have said that the holidays really center on family and tradition and worship is a wonderful accessory. But today I think I'd say that worship is central. I think that one of the reasons for this growing hunger and appreciation for worship is that so much in the world is not right. Like, we in our church have shut-ins. We have believers facing surgeries. We have brothers and sisters grieving loss. Two of my relatives are separated from their spouses for the first time in their lives. Persecution, as we've noted in recent weeks, is intensifying around the world. As a child, I was happily ignorant of these problems, many times because I was graciously shielded from them. As a young adult, I think Christmas was like a little escape from reality. It was Christmas break when your tests were finally over and you could sleep till noon. Well, for me, the holidays are not anymore a time to forget about problems, but they're a time to face problems head on with the truths that are central to the holidays, truths of thankfulness, truths of Jesus's incarnation and his willingness to walk in our shoes and die in our place, proving that he can rule the world. The truths like we've been celebrating this morning that Jesus has come to earth, that he's coming to earth again, these are central. These are our only hope day in, day out, season in, season out. For the past two months, we've actually been studying the book of the Twelve, or also known as the Minor Prophets. These 12 books, I've repeatedly said, I think are the least familiar portion of the Bible, but I'm trying to address that for us. I pray that week after week we are seeing God. I pray that as we study Nahum, we see our God and understand him more accurately. Nahum is a man whose name is unfamiliar to us us English speakers. I've only in my life ever met one man named Nahum, and he's spreading the gospel over in Norway. Nahum may have an unfamiliar name, but his writing should not be unfamiliar to us. The reason is because God spoke to us through Nahum. He revealed himself to us through Nahum. If we want to understand God, 
we need to understand Nahum. Now you may recall that I have taught that Israel's history needs to be simply understood in three stages. There is first the United Kingdom under David and Solomon around 1000 BC. Within 100 years, then the kingdom splits. That would be the second phase. The kingdom splits into north and south. And then the third phase, as you trace the north out, in 722 they're decimated. And if you trace the south out in 586, they're decimated. So you have United Kingdom, divided kingdom, and then both kingdoms decimated. If you understand that basic gist of 500 years of Israel's history, you'll have some framework for understanding when these prophets speak and to whom these prophets speak. Nahum, he is the seventh of the 12 minor prophets or prophets whose writing is small. He announces that the Lord is going to cause Nineveh to fall. He's going to destroy Nineveh. You notice that Nahum speaks after Nineveh, Assyria, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, after Nineveh has destroyed the northern kingdom. A few years later, he announces that Nineveh herself will fall. Let me give just a a few more details here about Nahum. He speaks around 650. That's when he's speaking God's word about Nineveh's downfall. He speaks to Nineveh about 70 years after it decimated the northern kingdom, just as God said it would. Nahum speaks to Nineveh about a century after Jonah preached to it. That may seem odd, because you know that when Jonah preached to Nineveh, Nineveh repented. But we have to keep in mind a couple things. First, Historically, nations can experience revival, massive revivals in one generation that are lost within a few generations. And we must also remember that even as the book of Jonah ends, saying there are 120,000 people who are spiritually ignorant, the revival that took place in Nineveh may have been very temporary and very superficial. Finally, I want to point out that Nahum speaks to Nineveh about 40 years before Nineveh falls to Babylon in 612 BC. So when Nahum speaks these words that Assyria is going to fall, that her devastation is going to be complete, he must have seemed out of touch with reality. Nineveh was the world superpower. And still today, Nahum seems out of touch with reality to many people, including many religious people, because he emphasizes God's anger and God's wrath and God's vengeance. But it's a good thing Nahum didn't care about popularity. He cared about accurately representing the Lord. He cared about accuracy. You see, we have to learn from Nahum that it is critical to understand God accurately. We have to understand God according to what he's revealed about himself. It doesn't matter if it's popular or not. It doesn't matter if it seems to be in touch or out of touch with reality. We must believe the God who is, the God who exists.
I'm going to read just the first chapter of Nahum and give a brief, very brief overview of the last two chapters. Would you follow along as I read the first chapter? This is an oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. This is near Israel's northern border. It's only about two miles from Lebanon today. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he'll make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He'll make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they're like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord. He was a worthless counselor. Just take a break. Look there in verse 9, four words in. The term plot, that term could be translated think. What do you think concerning the Lord? Nahum is challenging his hearers, including us, with whether we think about God rightly or wrongly. What do you think concerning the Lord? And through Nahum, God announces that Nineveh will fall and never rise again. Thus says the Lord, verse 12, Though they are at full strength and many, they'll be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, Israel, I will afflict you no more with the Assyrians. And I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. Children will no longer be born Assyrian after Assyrian generation. From the house of your gods, I'll cut off all the carved images and metal images, and I'll make your grave, for you're despicable. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. O Judah, celebrate your feasts, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He'll be utterly cut off. The Assyrians, God announces, will be completely destroyed. In chapter 2, the Lord continues to emphasize that Assyria must prepare to fall. Look at verse 1. While Israel, verse 2 of chapter 2, should anticipate restoration. The Lord then describes in just short, sharp statements that Babylon's going to invade. Look at verse 10. Nahum describes its horrors like this. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt. Knees tremble. 
anguishes in every loin, in every stomach, down to the, to, to, to the bottom of your soul, you're going to be in anguish. And all faces are going to grow pale. In chapter 3, then, the Lord continues to address how his judgment's going to fall on Nineveh for her violence. Look at verse 18. The Lord addresses the king of Assyria directly. At this time in history, that was Ashurbanipal. He was king for almost 40 years. And the Lord tells him in verse 19, there will be no healing for the wound that I will inflict. And there is going to be great joy at your downfall, Nineveh. He tells the king, I'm going to afflict you and you'll never rise again. And the whole world's going to celebrate your downfall. What do you make of a message like this? What do you make of a message like this? There are two basic facets to Nahum's message. And they are summarized very powerfully in two statements in the first chapter. And many people can't imagine that both of these are true at the same time. The first is this. The Lord is fierce toward those who rebel against him. God announces complete destruction on Nineveh and all of Assyria because, verse 2, he's jealous, avenging, wrathful, and he says he will never clear the guilty. What do you think of those descriptions? What do you think of God as jealous, avenging, and wrathful? There's one way you could look at each of those terms, either negatively or positively. Jealousy can refer to something that's negative, that's immature. She was so jealous of me. He was so jealous of that toy that she got. That's sinful jealousy. But in God, it refers to a possessiveness of what rightfully belongs to him. Vengeful, similarly. You almost never hear vengeful used positively in English. It typically refers to someone who's like, I want to hurt them for what they did to me, whether that's just perceived or not. But Nahum's concept has to do with just vengeance. God is a God who will do what's right and punish all wrong. He's vengeful in that sense. To be wrathful could refer to selfish, uncontrolled rage. Not so in God. He's slow to anger, controlled in his response. But he is intensely opposed to all people who oppose him. He has given them their existence. They're rightfully his. And if they oppose him, he is intensely opposed toward them. That's what it means to be wrathful. He is controlled, slow, but intense in his opposition toward those who oppose him. Nahum announces that the Lord is jealous, filled with vengeance and wrath. Again, what do you think of the Lord? What do you make of this God? I think most people, maybe even most Christians in our day, have more of a Santa Claus view of God. He knows if you've been bad or good, but if you've been bad, you'll just get a lump of coal in your stocking. I mean, not real judgment. 
going to fall on you. God's not like that. He's kind. Mark O'Donohue is a pastor in London. He preached through Nahum, and he's just simply said, many people think that if God exists at all, then he must be a soft and cuddly celestial slot machine. Nahum reminds us that God is a jealous avenger. Far from being a green-eyed monster, the Lord is rightly jealous for what's his as creator. We must understand God rightly. Now, if you're tempted to say, wait, 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 I've gone to church a lot. Is this just Nahum? I mean, I've never really heard this emphasized. I'd point you to cover to cover of the Bible. Nahum is not presenting something that is out in left field. He is presenting to us the God who reveals himself cover to cover in the Bible. Let me give you two examples. Exodus 34. Actually, Nahum, I think, is quoting God's revelation to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Nahum quotes several of those exact statements of when the Lord revealed his glory to Moses. Wow. Or if you turn to the very last pages of the Bible, Revelation 19, John is given a vision what the future is going to look like when Jesus storms earth and returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. His eyes are a flame of fire, signifying jealousy. Our God is a consuming fire. And verse 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. There's no chance of saying, Oh, this vision of God, it's confined to Nahum. There's no chance of saying this vision of God, this this understanding of God, it's just the Old Testament. No, this is cover to cover who our God truly is. When Jesus returns, he will unveil God's jealous, avenging fury. Some of you have just read through the Bible this year again. Some of you have done it 30 or 40 times. It's your life habit. I thank God for you and your example to us. Some in our congregation are thrilled to have done it for the first time in 2021. There was a group of about 10 that started the year saying, we are going to read through the Bible this year. And I've heard from at least two that they have just crossed the finish line. It's awesome. Some of you need to make it your goal to read through the Bible for the very first time beginning now or beginning with the new year. It's a great goal to set. It doesn't really matter if you make it through in eight weeks or if you make it through in 52 weeks or if you make it through in three years. The goal is not the speed. The goal is that you are encountering God as he's truly revealed himself. And it is the only way that we can assure that we have an accurate view of God. What we feel about God means nothing 
what we feel God is or who we want God to be doesn't matter anything. God is who he is. What he has revealed about himself is everything. Now, how is God's wrathful justice helpful to you? It's really only helpful if you're a person who regularly longs for justice. If you've been cheated or stolen from, if lies have ruined your life or your career, if you've been abused by someone who's more powerful, if you've been sexually violated, Nahum is immediately relevant. Justice matters to God. And the message of Nahum shouts this. God is a God of justice. Sin will not go unpunished. But if you have not experienced much injustice, thank God, but don't twist your view of God. Nahum might seem out of touch to you. He might even seem harsh. But that might be because you've been so protected and blessed in your life to have not experienced major injustices. But if you have suffered injustices, then you need a strong dose of Nahum. It is really only by trusting that the God of vengeance is coming that we can actually obey Paul's counsel as Christians and never avenge ourselves, but leave vengeance to the wrath of God. For it's written in Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We can only experience peace in our lives right now amidst life's injustices if we are trusting a God of vengeance and we can leave vengeance to him. The second facet of Nahum's message is that the Lord is a fortress for all who take refuge in him. This is in verses 7 and 8. He's furious toward his enemies, but he's a fortress for his people. Nahum's name actually means comfort. And he says in verse 7, the Lord is good. And by that, he means two things. If you keep reading verse 7, he says, he's going to protect you if you trust in him. And then into verse 8, he's going to destroy your enemies. He's good. He's going to protect you, and he's going to destroy those who want to harm you. Both his protection of his people and his destruction of our enemies show his goodness. Now, there is mystery in this passage. I didn't point it out in Exodus 34, but it was there as well. There is mystery in the Old Testament. It's evident in Exodus 34. It's evident in Nahum 1. And I'd simply say it like this. How can God be good to the guilty? The Lord, according to verse 3, never leaves the guilty unpunished. But according to verse 7, he cares for those who take refuge in him. He's good. Now, little quiz, okay? Little quiz. Nineveh was full of idolaters and, and violent people. 
self-centered people who rejected the one true God. Israel always loved the one true God. Never turned from the one true God. Never bowed down to idols. Was never selfish. True or false? False. The message of the Old Testament is Israel's the same as Nineveh. Judgment's going to fall on Nineveh and judgment's going to fall on Israel as many of these minor prophets announce. It's not that Nineveh was bad and Israel was good. So, how can the Lord say, I'm never going to leave the guilty unpunished, but I'm good? How is it that God can be good to those who are guilty? You see the tension here. The answer to this mystery is hinted at in every animal sacrifice throughout the Old Testament. Every time animals were slaughtered at the temple, they were hinting at the answer to this problem. But the sacrifices themselves didn't actually take away sin. Instead, they pointed ahead to a sacrifice that would. How can God be good to the guilty is a question that gets answered seven centuries after Nahum when Jesus is dying on a cross. Upon him fell the punishment that brought us peace. The punishment that brought us reconciliation with God fell on Jesus. The Lord punished him for the iniquity of us all. So there's one way you can actually read Nahum. Think about this. You can actually read Nahum as he's saying, Nineveh, desolation, destruction. It's coming to you. Your faces are going to grow pale. You're going to have a pit in your stomach that's deeper than anything you've ever experienced before because God is against you. And you can read that as an account of what Jesus endured in your place on the cross. He bore your punishment. It's the only way that guilty people like us can take refuge in the Lord. It's because Jesus made a way. It's only Jesus. And that's the wonder of Christmas, isn't it? Jesus was born to bear this punishment in our place. And when Jesus died, he was billboarding God's justice and goodness. That God was just in punishing sin and so good in offering forgiveness to all of us who would trust in Jesus. Christmas is awesome. So in the prophecy of Nahum, the Lord warns punishment toward those who rebel against him and he assures comfort to those who are taking refuge in him. Nahum stresses that both of these are true. God is a ferocious avenger and he is a safe fortress. He's a bit like good law enforcement. You will be punished if you're trespassing, but you will be protected if you're threatened. An accurate understanding of God must keep both of these together, and you must not minimize either side. If you've not taken refuge in Jesus 
then let the words of Nahum 1-2 fall hard. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. You owe your life to the God who made you, to the God who gives you every breath. How are you going to give an account for living so often for yourself? Before this God who won't let the guilty go unpunished. I urge you to turn your life to Jesus, the one who bore your punishment in your place. Take refuge in him. Run to him. Admit your rebellion. Call on him. You're my only hope for being reconciled to God. Turn to Jesus, the one who bore God's punishment that you deserved. If you have taken refuge in Jesus, you have admitted your rebellion and committed your life to him, then I urge you today to treasure the words of Nahum 1.7. In all the distress, the storm of life, God is your stronghold. He's your fortress. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're going to experience an easy life. It does mean that through the storms of life, God's promises are going to surround you like a castle wall, like a fortress. You say, like, can, can God's promises really do that? I'm not talking pie in the sky. I'm not talking mind over matter. I'm talking words that God has spoken that sound like, I will never hold your sin against you again. It needs to be like a fortress wall around you when you're in the storms of life. I will be with you. I'll never, ever leave you. I'll raise you from the dead. I'll perfect you, body and soul. I'll give you an inheritance in my kingdom. I'll wipe away every tear and be your fullness of joy forever. I'll be forever yours. You'll be forever mine. You'll belong to me and live in my presence. That's the fortress for us in our storms. He is our fortress. Look at just those few words of verse 7 again and treasure them. If you've taken refuge in Jesus, the Lord knows you. He knows you. I just want to end with one final observation. I know a lot of us are going to be thinking about the new year ahead. And I just want to urge you to devote yourself to the Lord as you think about maybe budgeting for the year ahead as you think about where to invest time in the year ahead let me urge you to lay up treasure in heaven nahum's message was given to the world in his day right it applied to nineveh but it applies to the world of our day nahum said assyria will fall it fell it never rose again Archaeologists found it in the middle of the 1800s. Similarly, the Lord has announced that all of the kingdoms of this earth will fall. And one day, Jesus will reign as King of Kings. So Christians, let these words shepherd you. Let these words shepherd you. Some of you have run to Jesus as your fortress. 
And you're just, you're looking at life and you're saying, man, Christians seem so weak. We are. We don't love like we should. We're not faithful like we should be. We often fall. We're often selfish. You're looking at Christians around you and you're saying, those Christians are so weak. And by the same token, you're looking out at the world. You're saying, wow, life out there seems to offer so much stability and security. Man, if I just made money for that company, if I just gave up on Jesus in this way, I'd be accepted into this group. My stability in the new year is really dependent on not being such a fanatic about God's rules, about God's way of life. And you're just thinking like, maybe this fortress isn't so great after all. I think maybe I'm going to go back out. You know what? I think I'm going to I think I'm going to let the people who seem to be powerful control my life. In Nahum's day, Nineveh was the superpower. But you would have been a fool to commit yourself to the Assyrians because they're going to fall. It may seem like your fortress is weak, And like everyone around is very strong. But you better let the very words of God shepherd you. Let the words of God control you. Walk by faith and not by sight. Don't step out of the fortress. Don't go back to the world. Don't think, you know what? I'm going to find greater security out there. Jesus is the only one who can protect you, as Paul said, from the wrath to come. And Jesus is the only one who can be your fortress in the day of distress. Stay put. Let the word of God control your life. Let God's revelation of himself through Nahum feed you and lead you today. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that we would not do what seems right, but that we would do what is right. Oh God, I pray that we would turn away from false gods that promise stability, whether that's business, money, acceptance. And I pray that instead we would trust you no matter how weak that makes us feel. Help us to trust you. Help us to walk with you. And I pray that you would strengthen us, Lord, as we approach the new year. May this be a banner over it, that you're a stronghold for us in the day of distress. In Jesus' name, amen.